0: You're listening to the OLLI at UNT alumni spotlight series presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about OLLI at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supack.
1: This is Susan Supack speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. This episode spotlights UNT alumna Charlie Fern. Charlie earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of North Texas, specializing in journalism and communication. Her skills and accomplishments are as varied as they are impressive. From working as a journalist for the San Diego Union Tribune to writing speeches for First Lady Laura Bush, Charlie has spread her expertise across many areas and continues to use her talents in Charlie Fern, Inc., assisting in strategic communications for Fortune 500 companies, ambassadors and elected officials, government agencies, and nonprofits. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Thank you, Susan. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to have you here. You have so much to talk about and so many interesting things that you've done. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. Let's begin with your adventures as chief speechwriter and press aide for Laura Bush while the Bushes were in the White House. That must have been both exciting and very demanding. You were there during some significant times, those terrifying sniper attacks in DC, the anthrax scare, and most notably the 9-11 attacks. What was that like for you? Well, first of all,
2: having written for Laura Bush in the governor's office in Texas, uh, felt very comfortable with getting to know her. I feel like her career as First Lady of Texas, then going to the nation's capital as First Lady, was a step for both of us. I don't think anybody could have possibly dreamed of all the drama and interesting things that would have happened during that time, not prepared whatsoever. One was enough. Three was more like military service. And Susan, I I just love talking to you because I know you understand what it's like to be a spokesperson for a very high level agency that has to do with national defense and also reporting to the president of the United States. So uh, part of it was I'm very confident in my history with Laura Bush. A lot of the issues she developed in Texas literacy, libraries, women's rights, so many of those things she wanted to carry forward on a national level, which was something that, that I could agree with. And I'm passionate about those things as well. And I felt grounded in those things. But once I got there, there, there is a small bit of being in your late 20s and early 30s of imposter syndrome when you're working at the very highest level of government, writing for the First Lady of the United States.
1: Can you explain that for people if they've never heard of the imposter syndrome? We all have it. I know.
2: It, it, it's, it's basically feeling like you're in over your head, and they're going to figure that out about you pretty soon.
1: They're going to discover that I don't really have, know what I'm doing.
2: <laughs> exactly. And so uh, it, it was definitely a different speechwriting experience. Now, remember, I was a journalist by trade, but when you're a speechwriter at a state level, it is so much different from being a speechwriter at the national level, especially with a brand new incoming administration and first lady. Suddenly, I found myself having to debate and find some diplomatic way of arguing a point for the first lady with. Cabinet secretaries and defense secretaries and and world leading experts on matters who all wanted talking points in a speech that may not have been her first choice in talking points. And in the end, if we had allowed all of those edits to be in there, it really wouldn't have been her speech and wouldn't have sounded like her. I had no idea the level of debate and diplomacy that is required at that higher level of getting a message through. And Susan, I know you know this, having been a spokesperson for the Army, just getting everyone to sign off on a message is a challenge. Getting everyone to sign off on fact-checking and statistics is an even greater challenge. And I felt like my job working for Mrs. Bush was to keep her voice and her heart in the speech. But she was also a little nervous herself. So she wanted to go a little heavier on policy. And the first speech that we really did together was an education speech that she was going to deliver to Senator Kennedy and the Education Committee on her education initiatives. And that was the morning of September 11th. And so lucky for me, in a weird way, we were still battling out what was going to go in the speech and not in the speech when all of that happened. So writing under duress is a whole new creature, and I don't think there's anything in a writer's life that could prepare you for that, much less going from a very comfortable zone to suddenly being in the center of a national and international spotlight.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you had to think about so many different parameters, and so many people had powerful positions that wanted their finger in that pie. I just can't imagine the different forces that you must have found <laughs> coming at you as you moved to the national level. It's fortunate that many of her issues you were already familiar with.
2: Thank God. i see that that truly because uh the things that made me fall in love with her were her core issues of early childhood cognitive development education she was a librarian so i love libraries and literacy and women's rights which turned out to be fortuitous these were already things that mattered a great deal to her and i had done extensive research as a speechwriter on these things, so we were definitely grounded in the basic premise of her platforms. What we didn't expect, or what I guess I didn't expect, is that when you're in the White House and the First Lady says something or the President says something, it can literally change global markets. Markets can crash, people can panic. And one of my favorite stories is about David Frum talking about the economy and having to write one of the president's first speeches and all of the president's speech writers were in the same area. And we knew that if we said there was a problem with the economy, there would be an issue with the stock market. And so David Frum, who was sort of the economic writer in that specific area was trying and trying and trying to figure out how to put it in a way that wouldn't send shockwaves across the world. And he was taking his kids to school on the way to work at the white house one morning. And the, the, um, you're almost had a gas light came on and he realized that he could say the warning light is on the dashboard of the economy. And it was a way of saying things are, Things are a little tough, but it wasn't so much to be repeated in a way that would cause global turmoil. And so the intensity with which we wrote and they spoke really, really mattered. And so that was a whole other new thing about voice and the audiences that you speak to.
1: And you mentioned also making sure that what you wrote for her to say was in her voice How important is that?
2: This is so important. And I love your interviews about authors because I'm a writer by heart. I have written since I could hold a crayon, basically. So I wrote very well in my own voice and I had pen pals and I became a journalist and I researched and interviewed, but I wrote in my own voice. I also wrote for the eye and not for the ear, which is a very, very different thing. I think the one thing that I learned moving from being a journalist to becoming a speech writer, the one thing that helped me transition was I uh, ran a chain of small newspapers in North County, San Diego, run by Universal Press Syndicate, and I had a column. And I spoke in a first-person voice. And so when I was asked to write Mrs. Bush's first speech in the, in the Texas governor's office, I did research, but I imagined what it would be like as a columnist me if i were to be at this event and and what i might say so i'm going from reporting the facts third person to climbing into the brain of the person who is speaking and realizing that it is a very different type of writing there was a there was a point after 8 years of writing speeches for her i could tell you her opinion on on shoe color, but I couldn't tell you my own opinion because I, I lived so much in her brain and I think that's what separates good authors from great authors is character development, the the ability to step out of their own mind and to imagine another person in another voice. So that was that was a big step. I think being a columnist helped me get there and having an imagination of what would I say And she was very patient with me in a lot of those ways. But writing for the ear versus the eye was a very important thing. And it's something that comes along kind of shockingly sometimes, but not always. Punctuation and all those different things, writing for another character.
1: We talked about women's rights just briefly. You mentioned that earlier. And that's quite a segue into the fact that Laura Bush was the very first woman to give the president's radio address as she was the first first lady to do so and appropriately enough that's what she spoke about was a, an issue concerning women that I think resonates with all women around the world and that is the Taliban's oppression of women and children you wrote that didn't you
2: I did and it's so interesting to be talking to you in 2022 about this because what's happening now is not that far of a cry from what was happening then but the need for women to have a voice and be educated is so crucial for for raising generations of peaceful children and when we saw wartime in Afghanistan and the oppression of the Taliban, I was, and journalists, woman, female journalists, um, I was sick at heart, like Mrs. Bush was. I grew up in Texas politics uh, way back when, and it was a good old boys club. And there was a lot of honey and those things. And, and I fought hard to have a voice to sit at the table I did uh, covered high school football at the Denton Record Chronicle, but I couldn't get in to the the <laughs> after the game. I couldn't get in to interview the coaches because I wasn't allowed in the locker room. And all of these things now, thank God, are are actually changing. I love seeing female journalists covering sports, but I also love the voice that women bring to the global debate. And I think there are so many parts of the world where where that comes and goes. And in Afghanistan, talking out, speaking out in favor of them, we also did a Radio Free Europe and Afghanistan speech along those same lines, kind of rallying women to support other women. And you know that's probably the strongest grassroots grassroots call you could ever do, asking women to support other women. But in a world that is run by men, there's so few women mentors. And in Afghanistan, there were none, and if you were brave enough to do something, you were literally risking your life and your children's lives, and I, I can't imagine that. And so what an honor it was to write for a first lady who generally in the very beginning didn't like public speaking, but this she could not not speak about it. And so I think together we brought a lot of passion and truth to what we were trying to say. And amazingly, after that, there were peaceful years where women actually got to go to school. There was a university here where the women could come and go back to Afghanistan and teach the next generation. And now that we have left Afghanistan, my heart was broken, mostly because I knew that all the progress we had made for those women would be gone. And we are seeing evidence of it. As sad as that is, I have to say, I know that once you give women a taste of freedom and you educate them, it cannot be taken away from them. They will fight to get it back. And so I have hope for that. And I think I learned to have that hope from a first lady who could see far ahead of me this you know, young, barely 30-year-old speechwriter for her, who wasn't even married, much less have kids, writing about this. So great mentor and such important topics, and how how would we know 20 years later that this would be front and center, not only worldwide, but here in the United States as well?
1: Absolutely right. I was in New York during 9-11 and was deeply affected by it. It rocked my entire community. I lived in an area where many NYPD, New York firemen were, and along with all of us commuting down to the city, and it was devastating and still is. I I still can't bring myself to walk into a 9-11 memorial. What was it like serving at the White House at that time?
2: You know, some of the best friends I've made in my life were not only the people that I was working with in the White House during that time, but also others who were in New York, like you, who were at a different scene. I think it is every bit as powerful and inexplicably horrible and traumatic. Nothing like this has ever happened. So it's very hard to put into words. You were where two airplanes had already struck. Then there was a Pennsylvania plane that we believe was headed for the White House and, and then the Pentagon. I was working on a speech I had the television on. They were talking about this poor accident with the first plane. Then we watched the second plane hit while I'm finishing up the speech. My then boyfriend future husband was getting ready for work on the 17th floor of an apartment building across the street from the Pentagon. And I had called him to say something strange is happening. And he looked out the window seconds after the plane hit the Pentagon. And it literally sucked in the windows and shook the building. And he, and he called me and said, we are under attack. I am the daughter of a highly decorated Army colonel. And you don't know what you're going to do in a situation like that until you're in it. And uh, my first thought was, got to get out of here. And the story I told myself was that I ran, but what I actually ended up doing was running down the halls, pounding on doors and saying, we're under attack. You've got to get out of the building. And banging on the door of a friend of mine from Texas who had her internship there, and it was her first day.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: (laughs) And her her fiancé was on the flight that took off for San Francisco, before the flight for San Francisco that hit the Pentagon, she had no idea where he was. I did run down the halls, try to get people out. They looked at me like I was crazy. We went down Congress Avenue. I could see the smoke and the fire and the flames from the Pentagon. And it's, it is it, it is surreal. Give me a lot of respect for my father and his military service. And there were no alarms so I was in the executive office building, which is on the White House grounds, where the speechwriters were. There were no alarms. Um, I think literally my future husband was the alarm. And that was unnerving. Uh, my colleagues in the West Wing, when the Secret Service found out, they were telling my colleagues to take off their shoes and run and get the heck out of there and run. Wow. And so we left. And the next day we had to go back to work, (laughs) going back to work in the center of the bullseye for a lot of people was okay. But uh, imagine me just, you know, barely 30 and wasn't a mother, wasn't married. And I am writing speeches for a first lady who has to comfort an entire nation. And I'll never forget the question that a reporter asked her is, what do you say to the children? And uh, I needed to write those speeches for her and help her, and I had no idea what to say. I was a child myself. I needed comforting, uh, so it was not pleasant. The heart probably the hardest thing I've ever done. But that is serving your country, and I know you understand that too, from your perspective in your life career. I wouldn't wish it anybody.
1: Well, the thing that. That really strikes me, Charlie, is in the position that you were in, is that you have to just still maintain yourself. You, can't, you couldn't back away. You couldn't say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off and get my head straight about this or whatever. You had to continue on what you were doing because it was such an important role.
2: Every day, yeah. And uh, because I lived across from the Pentagon, um, my metro stop was the stop before the Pentagon. So on my way to work every day, we would pass by the Pentagon metro stop, which was closed. And we knew that we were passing by because we could still smell the smoke. And Mm -hmm. again, that was the wing that I toured on September 10th with my professor, my dean of North Texas School of Journalism, Dick Wells, the day before. And so the people that I met were in that office that day. So ah. going back into the bullseye, needing to be comforted, and having to write speeches for the the wife of the leader of the free world was challenging. She was such an amazing woman though she she found a way to do it and helped me help me get around it too. But it is um, it is something I wouldn't wish on anybody, but is also something that I, I wouldn't refuse to do again, if that makes sense. Because the way that the world felt and the love that we had for our country and the support that we had was incredible.
1: I also would imagine that something like that must stay with you in a sense of the inner strength that you realized that you had. And I can imagine also grew going through an experience like that.
2: And I wonder what you
1: think, Susan.
2: So some years after nine/ eleven, the first few years, when we get to nine eleven, it's very hard, and we feel the grief. Um, and then some years they it passes by, and we don't know, and everyone says we will never forget, but even even you and I may have had a year or two where we did forget. But it really really did change the way we look at vulnerability and pride and geopolitics and what words can do. It it really will change you. And because of that, I think I am able to pass on some of those ideas to the next generation, especially next writers, in terms of perspective.
1: Yeah, and I also experienced seeing some incredible resilience from my community from people who had lost people and people who had been terrified there in the workplace i remember one person said all, everybody poured out on the street and it looked like a science fiction movie because they're all walking and they're in the walking in the smoke and there's no way out and they're walking across the bridges and and some Aircraft go flying overhead, and someone said, it's okay, they're one of ours. To see the resilience of it was really incredible. Isn't
2: it, though? Because we had no frame of reference, no frame of reference for any of this. Other countries have, but we had no frame of reference what to do. And so the people that I worked in the White House with, and, and some of them were interns and younger, and some of them... Were seasoned speechwriters who had many more letters after their name and their degree than I did. Were were remarkable, but there was something about all of us, whether we were in New York or Washington or Pennsylvania, that I can imagine what a brotherhood of military personnel who have been to war together felt. And it's yeah. a, it's a sad distinction, isn't it, Susan?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, going now, moving closer to home, you've worked for some incredibly strong women. And another trailblazer was Governor Ann Richards, the 45th governor of the state of Texas, Wahoo, and the first woman to hold that office in her own right. So we're really talking about women's issues today.
2: What An amazing Spitfire, she was too.
1: Tell us about that.
2: So uh, I grew up in a, a somewhat political family. My stepfather was in Texas politics, while my father was in you know higher ranks of army. So I had a, a Republican father and a and a liberal stepfather. So I, I guess you could call me bipolar. But <laughs> North Texas and my journalism degree. I learned how to be suspicious of both of them and very neutral and just the facts. But Anne Richards and a lot of people from her era were sort of household fixtures in my life. And I have so much respect for her. This woman rising to that rank through the ranks of Texas politics. Molly Ivins was one of my heroes and she told it like it was. And she she and Anne were very close friends. But to be able to get through that good old boys club and make it to the top is remarkable. We didn't have mentors back then, Susan. I mean, when there were there were young men of promise, there were plenty of men who would mentor them. But for us, it was fight tooth and nail to get to the top. And a few of us had some energy left to look behind us and see who was coming up from behind the other women and, and help bring them along. But we are still in those early days. If you ask me,
1: I think so too. Yeah. So, and a lot has changed, but some has not
2: her legacy is so beautiful and powerful here in Austin and throughout Texas. I have never been humbled by a quicker wit. She was absolutely brilliant and had a comeback for everything. And her poor (laughs) speechwriter, who I knew, (laughs) Jean, had no chance for writing the jokes and just delivered them herself. And uh, I wrote proclamations and greetings for her, but I will be forever grateful to her for, for giving me that job. I took it in July of her election year, and in November she lost that election. And I had just come from California and was more of a reporter than someone who understood Texas politics. And I didn't realize that when a governor lost election, her staff was supposed to leave. And so I just kept showing up for work every day. <laughs> and at one point, I might have been the only person on the entire floor of that building typing away proclamations and greetings, because I knew I was a writer and I could write well, uh, didn't know I was supposed to leave. And so when the New administration came in, the Bush administration came in. They were a little puzzled by me and (laughs) wanted to know why I was still there. But lucky for me, Karen Hughes was his press secretary and Karen was a TV anchor in Dallas. So another one of those journalist icons who I looked up to and she realized (laughs) that I was a good writer and a journalist and I could look at things objectively. And I I knew issues and I had institutional knowledge and I didn't have an agenda other than just really being clear in my writing and helping. So somehow I survived. And I and I joke that if it weren't for <laughs> Ann Richards and my political stupidity and good writing skills, I never would have made it to the White House.
1: That's a great story. I love that story. How different was that for you working at those different levels? You've done local, I suppose, if you look more at your journalism, but that also wasn't entirely local. But then you were at the state with Ann Richards and with Laura Bush, mm-hmm. and then going up to the national level. Were they different or did you find yourself drawn into the same sort of things, but maybe a bigger audience? How's that work?
2: All of that. What I've come to realize in hindsight now is that hey, I have been really lucky to write for and work with some of the world's most extraordinary women. And in that sense, Susan, we are all the same. The things that matter to us, women's rights, literacy, libraries, education, early childhood, cognitive development, all of these things that are essential to a stable and prosperous society, it's usually the voice of a woman leader who supports those things, mostly I don't want to generalize, but mostly. And so to find myself in the midst of women like this throughout my career has been an incredible blessing. And I wish that more people had had that opportunity, but also I would like to be one of those people who can help them do that. On the state and national level, it it is a whole different world. Again, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in Journalism, And that degree from North Texas is beat up, dirty, got torn, wrinkled, footprints all over it. I have worn that degree out and it's taken me all over the world and into jobs and relationships I never knew possible. And I think that speaks a lot to believing in showing up, believing in yourself and being willing just to try. And I know that sounds trite, but for me, that sort of is my life story. This this little degree took me a long way. And I was humbled by some of the genius minds that I was surrounded by, but I was never afraid to ask them to mentor me.
1: You know, of the creative people that I have interviewed over the past year, it seems like all of them, almost without uh, without one missing, remarked about libraries and how important they are. And Charlie, you're right in there in that crowd. You mentioned libraries. And I know that one of the initiatives that First Lady Laura Bush created was the National Book Festival. And As you mentioned, libraries were very important to her. And I also read a very interesting fact about you, that you, for many years, have chaired the Texas Book Festival. And I looked up the Texas Book Festival. Oh, my goodness, how did I not know about that? That sounds so incredible. Can you talk about that? One of the things that
2: I I really admired most about Laura Bush is her being a librarian because librarians are like the Google of the world. That's, that's how they began sharing knowledge and information. There was a funny joke that we wrote that at a, I think an event raising money for libraries where Mrs. Bush said, when I first met George, he was a gregarious businessman who's <laughs> who thought that the bibliography was the <laughs> biography of the man who read the Bible. And he said, you know, when I first met Laura, she was a shy librarian whose idea of oratory was shh. It's so not true. I mean, it is a group of people who have unbounded imagination and a passion for sharing that with other people and libraries. I mean, if you go back to the times of Carnegie, right, but having access to books, having a library was unheard of. And so for libraries to actually provide knowledge to people who might not otherwise be able to afford them was so important and I think a big part of early childhood cognitive development is reading to your children early and often. Uh, one of the greatest lessons I learned from Mrs. Bush. And it doesn't matter what socioeconomic group you're from or what part of town you're from. You can go to a library and get a book and read to your child. And I love that. It is the, it, it is the idea of democracy and leveling the playing field. And I have to, honestly, I believed it, but I didn't understand it, the importance of libraries and books until I became a mother myself some years after I stopped writing speeches for her and I had my son and I read to him every day from the day he was born, which made no sense to me before I was a mother. You know, these are babies and they chew on the books, but that process of feeling and touching the books and reading with them every day Even when they learn to read, then continuing to read is one of the greatest things that you can do for a child. And she was right; it was the best, best education I ever got in parenting. Although I did create a monster. My son is a voracious reader and very smart, but having access to those books matters so much. And so what we saw in Texas and a lot of border communities and different communities were these. Struggling public libraries that, that didn't even have shelves to put their books on. And so Mrs. Bush came up with this idea of having a book festival where authors would come together to read from their books and booksellers would sell their books and there would be food and music and all of these things in and around the Texas state capitol. And it took several years of planning and I've, I've written more of. Texas book festivals speeches than anyone on the planet. Um, But but the the underlying point is the celebration of books and reading. And so I actually, when I was her speechwriter in Texas, I wrote the speeches. And when I came back from the White House, I chaired the children's entertainment tent, which brought me into the music and filmmaking industry that I work with sometimes as well. But volunteering for that was mind-blowing because of the money that we raised. Some libraries would get $10,000, and with that money, they were able to buy infrastructure, shelves and chairs and books and magazines that people would get in their community centers. So uh, it's kind of hard not to fall in love with an idea like that. So pretty easy to wrap my speeches around those ideas, but I never realized it would stick with me. Long after I had stepped away from speech writing at that level, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go because it really does matter, the ideas of, of reading and literacy. And I loved that she took the Texas Book Festival to the national level, and that was probably one of the smoother transitions from a state program, a state idea, to a federal idea A lot of libraries would lose funding whenever there were government cuts of the arts and those sorts of things. So they really had nothing to fall back on. So the idea of raising money through these wonderful festivals where bookworms everywhere could come together meant a lot. And it didn't take a lot of money to help hundreds of libraries in Texas and thousands of libraries around the country.
1: Anything that inspires people to read has my full support. Everybody listening, pick up a book. It doesn't matter what kind of book. It doesn't matter what genre you're drawn to. Just pick it up and read. But that reading to children, oh my goodness, I I loved reading to my kids and they loved hearing it and just opening up that world to the kids that they know that all they have to do is pick up that book and And read it.
2: Sharing those moments with your kids. So that was another thing I could imagine what she would say before I was married. But when she would say in a speech, the moments that I sat with my children and I had my arms around them and I read with them are some of the most precious memories of my life. And I could see that made sense, but not until you become a parent and have children do you realize. Those are the sweetest moments of your life when you can sit together and read together. And that was one of her recommendations when we, our country has gone through traumatic events like 9-11, turn off the TV, sit with yes. your children and read together.
1: Absolutely. Turn that darn TV off and read together. Isn't it amazing? The
2: simplest advice is the best advice and you know the things that we've known instinctively, for generations. We've been waiting for science to prove, and now it is being proved out. Yes, we were right. Do those simple things.
1: Good for your brain. Very good for your brain. So you have, it's quite obvious now for anybody who's been listening and for anybody who looks up all of your experiences, you have had such vast experiences. Do you credit any of them specifically along with your your degree from UNT, I might throw in there, I'm glad you brought that up, in helping you to teach others to become more accomplished in public relations, media training, and just communications in general. Do you have any of them that stick out with you? Several.
2: My first point would be at North Texas, I learned so much about fighting for my story and to have a quote put in and being fierce in the face of an editor. And uh, one of the things that I like to tell people is there's nothing more important than showing up. And I'll give you an example why. When I graduated from North Texas, I got a job right out of college, lifestyles editor for the Galveston Daily News. The Texas economy was crashing in the 80s. And I was only there three months before the newspaper almost folded and I needed a job. And my life's dream absolute dream was to someday be a reporter for the San Diego union, which is a major metropolitan newspaper in San Diego. It was the union and the tribune. And, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I called up my professors from North Texas and I said, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I really would like to go to San Diego and and work for them. And so my professors at North Texas found some alumna who actually two alumni who who work for the paper. They arranged for me to meet them. So I flew out to see them and brought my resume. I am literally not even a year out of college. Take my resume with me. They show me around the newspaper. And at that time, there was the, the San Diego Union, which was the morning paper, and the Tribune, which was the afternoon paper. Very last days of that. In fact, the Tribune was folding at that time. And reporters with 30 years of experience were hustling, trying to get a job with the union. I happened to show up at that time. So the, my fellow North Texas people took me around and introduced me to the news editor at the San Diego Union, Ray Kipp. And I walked in and I handed him my little resume with one job on there. And he said, come here, come here. Let me come in here and look at this. He takes me into his office and there's this pile of of papers on his desk that's probably 18 inches to two feet tall. He says, you know what that is? And I said, no. And he goes, those are resumes from people all over the nation and from the Tribune who need a job. Why on earth should I hire you? And I, I just said, because I'm here. (laughs) <laughs> here, here's my brother. And he laughed and laughed. And, <laughs> and they felt bad for me. They took me to lunch, the editors and the North Texas people. And I came home to Texas brokenhearted. It was a Thursday. I didn't know what I was going to do. Friday morning, I get a phone call from Ray Kip, the editor, who said, one of our reporters has just gone on maternity leave. If you can be here on Monday, you've got a job. And I moved from Texas to California from Friday to Monday. I was there. I showed up. I got the job. And I think that's something I used to credit to naivete, but I think there's another part of getting training as a journalist to not take no for an answer. And so that was my first real experience of finding a way around things. And so that has always stuck out to me. And in fact, I've I've given speeches in other places about showing up, how important it is to show up, show up to get a job, showing up to keep your job, like in the governor's office. I didn't know I was supposed to leave. I just kept showing up for work every day. And then showing up when you really don't want to, like after 9-11 on September 12th, you show up anyway. Showing up is, is a theme that I've learned from all of these work experiences. But then there's another bit, that I think is really important. And I think writers struggle with this as well. And that's showing up for yourself. So as a reporter, we're trained to tell stories, write stories about events. And in the old days of journalism, when the earth was still cooling and dinosaurs were around, we were taught to get quotes from people on each side of an issue and represent both sides to tell that story. But when we think back about our own life stories, I feel like so many of us have a super slanted story about ourselves. So my story that I told myself for years was that on 9-11, I was a coward and I ran. And it took me 20 years to realize I didn't run out of the building. I actually ran deeper into the building to get some of my friends out. And I didn't know that until I'd heard it over and over again for 20 years. And then what sealed it for me was... One of my favorite speechwriters, David Frum at the White House, who refused to leave because he had ancestors who were in the Holocaust and who had died. And he said, I was not going to leave my office because I don't run from terrorists. And the Secret Service actually came in and threatened to drag him out and arrest him to get him out of the building. So he agreed to leave. And years later, he was interviewed. I would say within the past five or so years, he was interviewed about that moment. And I couldn't believe what I heard because he was a hero to me for being the last person out of the building. He said he felt like a coward because he gave in and left the building. And I thought if one of the most amazing writers I know and a hero calls himself a, a coward, he was the bravest person I knew. Oh, my gosh, what does that mean about the stories we tell about ourselves? So I think there's a lot to writing, and I think there's a lot to writers who are able to crawl into the brains of others and do character development and imagine other worlds and people. And I wonder if some of us don't do that as a way of escaping our own stories. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. What a powerful message.
2: So I think that would be one thing, I guess, you could take away from that, from the life experience, what one thing would I carry with me would be the art of storytelling, but also understanding the story you tell
1: yourself. What an incredible, incredibly true and very powerful message. I thank you so much, Charlie. Your story... Has so much to say. Your life experiences have been very interesting, not only unique, but you have many important, powerful takeaways from them. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of all that you do. And I know you're a very busy woman
2: so much for having me. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to a fellow peer and woman who has done equally amazing things. It's just so nice to be able to sit down and chat together. And I know we could go on for another couple of hours.
1: Most definitely. Most definitely. I feel as though I have certainly just scraped the surface of Charlie Fern's adventures, but I know there's a book out there somewhere, Charlie, right?
2: (laughs) Maybe you can help me
1: write it, my dear. There we go. We'll collaborate. Thank you again. I appreciate it very much. Pleasure. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Charlie Fern. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu podcast.